Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Summer Podcast Number Six. Today, we're going to be talking about David Lynch's 1992 feature, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, and the 90 minutes uh, that he had to cut out, uh, which he eventually released in 2014 as The Missing Pieces. Uh, the This is part of our final summer pod series where we're really looking at Twin Peaks uh, in its entirety as a work of art. And we're also reposting Secret Movie Club Podcast 86, which was an interesting one because it we called it the lost podcast episodes because prior to the team as you know it, uh, Connor Lloyd Cruz, Edwin Cesar Gomez, Daniel Ott, and myself, uh, Craig Hamill, uh, initially I was recording myself talking to friends about movies and uh, here I talked to my friends Matt Olson incredible screenwriter Brian Hatfield incredible filmmaker I went to USC with who made one of the best shorts I ever saw and Steve Grest who you've heard in defend this movies and who also is an incredible writer those were actually recorded 2018 2019 so they really represent the very first podcasts that uh, ever were recorded for the secret movie club podcast as always we want to let you know what's coming up this week. Uh, by the time that you hear this, it'll be Friday, September 1st. And tonight, we continue our Secret Series 2023, our Night 7. If uh, you've been following our social media or reading the blogs, you'll notice they're all about Twin Peaks. And today, we're talking about Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, the feature. Uh, tonight, we are starting The Return and we are showing parts one through four. Tomorrow, uh, we return finally to the Million Dollar Theater Movie Palace, and we are doing Alfred Hitchcock's The Lodger with a new live score by the Jack Curtis Dabowski Ensemble. This Sunday, we're actually already sold out, but uh, we have indie filmmakers who are coming to the club, and they're screening their movie, which is bound for festivals. It's an indie survival thriller, and they want to get feedback. So as part of our mandate, and mission to be a community of movie makers and movie lovers when this opportunity came to us uh you know we were honored and it's just a great opportunity it is sold out we're going to work more and more to have these opportunities to talk to filmmakers to see works in progress uh next wednesday we show ridley scott's legend from 1985 on 35 millimeter this stars a pre-top gun tom cruise it's got tim curry and some of the most amazing practical effects makeup you'll ever see uh, as a demon devil satan called darkness uh ridley scott would actually repurpose a lot of the unicorn imagery from legend for his director's cut and final cut of blade runner but we wanted to show it because we get to show it on 35 millimeter and you're going to see uh, just one of these movies made by a filmmaker, all practical effects. And there's just something wonderful and cinematic about that. Uh, Thursday, next Thursday, September 7th, we continue our secret series 2023 with parts five through eight of the return. And this includes, of course, a lot of people refer to it as episode eight. I probably should refer to it as part eight, possibly the greatest e hour of television ever as always you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com uh, you can find out our whole calendar at secretmovieclub.com and you can get tickets by going to eventbrite so just google eventbrite secret movie club we really would appreciate your reviews uh, if you can review us at spotify apple pods uh, and if you have feedback tell us what we can do better we want to hear that too write us at community at secretmovieclub.com 
and, uh, you know, Yelp reviews, Google reviews, it all helps. Okay, moving on. Last week, we really did a deep dive into the first two seasons that showed on network TV. Interestingly, uh, in season two, the ratings fell off. David Lynch and Mark Frost had gone off to do their own features. Lynch had done Wild at Heart. Mark Frost had done a movie called Storyville. And they came back and they wanted to do a season two series finale or season finale in the hopes that it would convince ABC to renew them for a third season. Uh, the What resulted, the season two finale known as Beyond uh, Life and Death, was one of the greatest episodes that Twin Peaks ever did. Uh, it, it 20 minutes of it was in the Red Room. It was incredible. It ended on a crazy cliffhanger with uh, Kyle MacLachlan's Dale Cooper, FBI agent Dale Cooper, seemingly possessed by Bob. And uh, But ABC didn't renew. They uh, <laughs> The business is cold. It's cold, cold business. And uh, Twin Peaks was just not doing the numbers they needed, and, and they canceled the series. Lynch, interestingly, around this time, he had uh, some friends who really supported him. And one of these friends, who was a Wheeler dealer, got Lynch a three-picture deal with a French industrialist who uh, was uh, formed a movie company called CB2000 and signed Lynch to a three-picture deal where Lynch was going to get final cut, make whatever movies he wanted to make. And originally, he got greenlit to do Ronnie Rocket, which... Uh, had been the movie Lynch wanted to do after Eraserhead. And I think you can find the script online. Ronnie Rocket uh, was very much a Lynch passion project and had been for, for 10, 11 years. But Lynch said that ultimately he realized that the script for Ronnie Rocket was never quite right. And uh, that whenever he had the opportunity or he was close, uh, he shied away from it or it didn't happen. And here, even though uh, he was greenlit to do Ronnie Rocket, he actually said, you know, no, I want to do a Twin Peaks movie. Now, everyone was all for it. Uh, and what Lynch said was that he he really had fallen in love with the Laura Palmer character. And he had felt that the series had never fully done her justice. So everybody, I think, had thought that what the movie would be, what Fire Walk With Me would be, would be a kind of episode 31 where uh, David Lynch and Mark Frost would wrap up all the loose ends that had been left loose uh, with the season two finale. What they got was a movie that was about the last seven days or the last, I, I don't know exactly the number of days, but the last week more or less in Laura Palmer's life leading to her horrific murder, the murder that kicked off the TV series uh, when her body is found uh, by uh, Jack Nance's um, uh, Pete Martell. And the David Lynch shot the movie. The movie was not without uh, its problems in production. The, the script had been written so that uh, the first half more or less was about Dale Cooper. And the second half was more or less about Laura Palmer. And then they came together in the final scene. And uh, Kyle MacLachlan didn't really want to do the movie. Um, he, I think, I don't want to speak for him. Maybe one day I'll get to talk to him. But I, I think he didn't really want to be associated too much with the Dale Cooper role. 
and was hoping now that the series had been canceled to branch out to show that he could do other parts, he could do other roles. Uh, but, you know, he and Lynch were very good friends. They had done Blue Velvet. They had done Dune together. And so Lynch convinced him to do a middle part of the movie and then the end of the movie. Uh, which is still amazing, and it's wonderful to have him as Dale Cooper. But that meant that Lynch had to rewrite the beginning of the film. And so instead of having a FBI agent Dale Cooper, we instead got Chris Isaac's FBI agent Chester Desmond and Kiefer Sutherland's FBI agent Sam Stanley. And the other big change was that Laura Flynn Boyle didn't come back to play Donna, Laura Palmer's best friend. And you really needed Donna. And so David Lynch had to recast that part with Moira Kelly, Myra Kelly, and who is great in the role. And what's interesting is that even though you have to do that thing of like, wait, this isn't Laura Flynn Boyle. This isn't the Donna that I know. And it's even weirder when you watch The Missing Pieces, which we're also going to talk about today, the 90 minutes that Lynch had to cut out because there's this really touching scene at uh, Donna's house with her parents and Laura Palmer. And you really feel like, oh, you know, what a scene had Laura Flynn Boyle been in it. But Myra Kelly is great in it. She's incredible. So Lynch had to make a, a number of these changes and he had to shoot the movie. He shot it pretty quickly. When you consider that the uh, series was canceled in 1991, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me debuted 1992 at the Cannes Film Festival. Now, what's interesting is that when it debuted, uh, it was almost universally panned. Uh, the can the can audience famously jeered it, booed it. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, and it's funny because it was 1992, so I know he had Reservoir Dogs, but he didn't yet have uh, Pulp Fiction, I don't think. He uh, famously said that the movie was so bad that he was not going to watch another David Lynch movie. And many critics just, just panned it. I think in retrospect, nobody was ready, and you you aren't even if you know what the movie is because the movie is so intense. Nobody was ready for how dark, how intense, how operatic, how tragic, how brutal the film was going to be. Uh, on top of that, not only did Lynch devote himself to making a movie about the last seven days of Laura Palmer's life and have have this weird prologue investigating Teresa Banks's murder, a murder that's referenced in the TV show but uh, has, has happened before Laura Palmer's murder, but they're linked, um, but also Lynch really commits to the Red Room and really commits to the transcendent aspects of Twin Peaks, and the movie ends— uh, and there's spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie, just stop right here, watch the movie, and then come back and listen. But the movie also ends with actual spirituality, uh, actual affirmation of redemption of a existence after this existence, and a redemption and a spiritual salvation in a way for Laura Palmer, and a meeting of Laura and Dale Cooper in... Uh, on this existential transcendent plane. And I think for a lot of people, you know, understandably Europeans as well, <laughs> they were, they, you know, they're a lot of, understandably, there are a lot of atheists, a lot of people who just don't go in for that anymore. And to see David Lynch sincerely commit to that, which he always has from Eraserhead, his movies have always been spiritual. Uh, but to see David Lynch not only commit to something incredibly dark, but also commit to something incredibly positive and optimistic, uh, I think it threw a lot of people for a loop. And uh, maybe in the early 90s, the ironic 90s, that kind of sincerity and, and that kind of this is what I believe 
Uh, a lot of people found the movie laughable, found the movie and Laura Palmer played by Cheryl Lee incredibly and and Leland Palmer, her father, murderer, played amazingly by Ray Wise. I just don't think people were ready for that intense emotion, sincerity, and commitment to try to capture on film something near impossible to capture on film. I think that Fire Walk With Me achieves something. Uh, you know, there, there are a few films in cinema that actually seem to touch the transcendent. A 2001, A Space Odyssey, Carl Theodore Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc and Ordet, uh, probably Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, uh, Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves and The Kingdoms Part 1 and 2. I, I am a spiritual person. I, I do believe in a, a existence beyond this existence. And I think that Lynch gets very close to how I, I understand it. It's hard for me to explain, but I, I think that, you know, when Shakespeare talks about it and to be or not to be, who would fartles bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will. That monologue, I think that Lynch gets at the heart of it which when he talks about the Red Room and he goes even further in the return, Twin Peaks posits that there, there may be more to this. There may be an existence beyond this existence. There may be a transcendent plane. There may be a spiritual plane. But it doesn't mean the cessation of suffering. It doesn't mean the cessation of struggle, of conflict. Uh, we, you know, the Hindus believe, and many faith cultures believe in reincarnation, that you have to come back and do it again and again and again until you get it right. And I think that Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me gets at some kind of truth, but in that way that Lynch, he doesn't over-explain it. And in fact, in a moment, we'll talk briefly about the missing pieces, which shows you that he really realizes, I don't want to over-explain it, I don't want to be didactic. But uh, what's so fascinating about Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me is that it's at once a harrowing metaphor for when we're betrayed by the people we trust the most because Lynch takes the Bob idea that that Laura Palmer's dad, uh, Leland Palmer, has been possessed by this, this malevolent evil known as Bob, and Lynch does the right thing, and he, he makes it stranger, and we realize that Leland... You know, Leland has been essentially raping his daughter uh, since she was 12, and that this has psychologically and spiritually destroyed Laura Palmer and put her, as it would anybody, and put her in a state of just just moral and psychological and spiritual anguish and torment. Um, and it, and so the movie is harrowing, uh, but at the same time. That he, that Lynch is doing that. Lynch is pursuing this mysterious, mysterious mystery with the murder of Teresa Banks, with the malevolent spirit of Bob, with the man from another place, with the Red Room, with Laura Palmer and Dale Cooper meeting in dreams of the unknowable transcendent, um, and also the beauty of it and the salvation of it. So I, I just all these things check off boxes for me about why I'm obsessed with the movie. I also just think the style of the movie is incredible. Uh, there's a sequence uh, where Laura and Donna 
take these two Johns, because you find out that Laura's essentially a prostitute, um, and, and getting money uh, at the, the Bang Bang Bar, the Roadhouse, uh, and taking men and sleeping with men as a kind of self-immolation, a self-destruction. And Donna goes with her, and they go north of the border into Canada into this club scene and Lynch does this amazing thing where you you're like you feel you're in a purgatory on earth this music is playing everyone is yelling there's uh it's all subtitled uh Donna gets roofied uh they're drugged out Laura realizes what's going on and wants to save Donna uh I think it's one of the greatest sequences Lynch has ever done and it it almost it rarely gets talked about uh and so the movie is incredible Lynch actually shot 90 minutes of footage that he had to cut out because he really was earnestly trying to stay true to the tone of the series. And he brought all of the series regulars, almost all of them. The only person I didn't see was Piper Laurie's uh, Catherine Martell. Uh, I'm trying to think, oh, and Ben Horn. I didn't see Ben Horn. Um, the, but everybody else had a scene, uh, but it made the movie three hours and 45 minutes. Now, what's funny when you watch The Missing Pieces is that a lot of the humor, a lot of the warmth, a lot of the humanity, a lot of the quirkiness that made uh, the series such a zeitgeist juggernaut when it came out. Lynch actually and Mark Frost, that actually was all intended to be in the movie. But uh, for Lynch to retain Final Cut with CB2000, he had to deliver a cut that was two hours and 15 minutes. And so uh, he started to cut these scenes. There's a really touching scene between uh, Big Ed and Norma in a car, they're the sort of necking and listening to the radio. There are a lot of funny scenes in the missing pieces. There's also, interestingly, a lot of uh, footage in the Red Room that predicts and presages season three, uh, Twin Peaks The Return, with time dislocation. Heather Graham's Annie shows up in a dream of Laura's and tells her to write down that the good Dale is in the Black Lodge. Uh, the man from another place keeps asking Dale Cooper, is this the past or is this the future? And all of that stuff is going to show up in Twin Peaks The Return. And again, a bit of a spoiler here. We're going to talk about it more in detail in the final uh, part of this podcast. But uh, the final episode of this podcast, but the final episode of Twin Peaks The Return takes that time dislocation and makes the whole episode about it brilliantly, brilliantly. But what's interesting is you can see that Lynch wants to do that, that that was always a part of Twin Peaks, but they cut it out. And you all, and, and interestingly, I didn't feel like it quite landed. Uh, it, 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 it Being too much in the Red Room with the way that that stuff was shot, it takes away a bit of the magic and a bit of the mystery. And so what's interesting too is in having to cut out the 90 minutes of footage that he did, it's interesting to see what was shot and what was intended to be in the movie. But actually, Lynch did something similar to what Stanley Kubrick did with 2001, which is right before 2001 was released. Stanley Kubrick cut out all this voiceover. He cut out all this stuff explaining what the movie was about. And the movie became infinitely more mysterious and I think better for it. And Lynch did the same thing here. And so the mist, the Teresa Banks mystery, the Laura Palmer mystery, the Red Room mystery, it all becomes infinitely more mysterious. And I think it's better for it because then you are engaging with the mystery intuitively instead of didactically. But sometimes subtracting is adding. 
in cinema. You know, they say less is more. And you hear that and it just sounds like a bromide, a cliche. But I, I really do think there's a weird alchemy in movie making and editing. And sometimes this magical thing happens that you cut something out and suddenly the movie gets better and richer. And weirdly, it's almost like a phantom limb. The scene that's cut out, you still feel, but now the audience has to engage with the movie and you feel that I feel all throughout Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. So we are going to move on to Secret Movie Club Podcast 86, which are the lost podcast episodes. I hope you enjoy them. These were episodes that were recorded before the podcast really became the podcast. And they represent the earliest podcast episodes we ever did. These were recorded in 2018, 2019. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week for Secret Movie Club summer podcast number seven where we are going to talk about um twin peaks the return the limited edition 2017 series that showed on showtime and we're going to talk about parts one through eight part eight or episode eight as a lot of people call it is often considered one of the greatest hours of television in the history of television i agree I think it may be the greatest hour of television. And so we're just going to talk about how David Lynch, how David Lynch weirdly with Twin Peaks kept upping himself, kept outdoing himself. Uh, and and we'll get into that next week. Thank you as always. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the podcast that's going to come up. Thank you everybody who's you know been making Secret Movie Club, Secret Movie Club. And I love you, family. Okay, so this is the Shadow of the Doubt podcast, my friend. Or I'm your friend. I don't, Matt Olson. We are friends. We are friends. There you go. We are friends. You and I are friends. Mixer's <laughs> mic. What does that mean? Is that like a four track? Or? I'll show you. Yeah. Do you see these uh, mics? Those are mics right on the I, mixer. I'm not interested in your sex toys. But, <laughs> like, I don't. You know. I don't know what you do with that in your butt. But you know. I don't. <laughs> you know. You know. It's just for times when I'm lonely. Now that I'm recording, don't play innocent. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about first? Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to introduce this again, cause I don't know how I'm going to yeah. edit and cut it, but let's, uh, what will you pick? What, what do you want to do? You want to do uh Terminator? Or you want to do Star Trek too? I'm, f- I'm fine for either. Okay. Let's do Star Trek too. Okay. We'll like go kind of semi chronological. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's chronological cause Star Trek two is, yeah. So I'm opening up a beer here. You're hearing my keys. I swapped out a squeaky chair. <laughs> With my Steve, cheers. Cheers. We're drinking Sapporos. Yep. I'm here with uh, my friend Steve Grest. Uh, the Steve and I, we met when we were 20, right? I think so. So we've been friends for for <laughs> years. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 86. Uh, this is a, this episode today is unique. It's actually stitched together from a number of rough draft podcasts that we did before we really kicked off uh, the podcast in 2020. So you're going to be hearing from uh, some of my friends who are I think extremely talented, extremely funny. Uh, I love spending time with them. Matt Olson uh, and I are going to talk about Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt. Brian Hatfield and I are going to actually talk about three other Hitchcocks, Rear Window, North by Northwest, and Psycho. And Steve Grest and I are going to be talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, 
and um, James Cameron's Terminator with some peck and paw and thrown in there. And then with everybody, we, we go everywhere. So today's lost podcast in a way is uh, going to be one of those epic movie conversations that uh, goes. It's it, This episode today is going to be much longer than our normal tight uh, under 50 minute podcast. And that's largely in part due to the fact that our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz is, and his, um, amazing years and amazing sense of pace is not behind this. So blame it on me. Uh, but also too, uh, we're trying, I'm trying to recreate here. What I hope is just one of those conversations, uh, that, uh, just winds and goes everywhere. I hope you enjoy it. Um, before we get to it, Today is December 31st, 2021, and I want to wish everybody a happy end of 2021. I want to wish you a happy new year, happy 2022, and I wish you your best year yet in in 2022. We have a lot of work ahead of us in 2022. I I think at this point, we just got to accept that uh, the COVID pandemic is on its way to becoming an endemic, and... um, you know, we're just going to deal with it every year and, and God willing over time, this virus, uh, mellows and we get our vaccines and we're all able to just deal with it as it comes in the winters and goes in the springs and the summers. So, uh, I just wish everybody the best dealing with yet another brutal winter, but, but we got to deal with it. You know, this is life now. So I just hope in 2022, all of us, figure out ways to make great movies, figure out ways to make things happen, figure out ways to live our lives. Uh, and I'm just sending that fighter energy to you. Um, when you hear this, uh, it'll be new year's weekend. You may want to check in with our social media. We're actually going to be posting just a few fun, uh, clips and video essays and interviews about John Ford, our director of 2022. So if you want to do a little homework or a little prep, ahead of 2022 on John Ford. We hope you'll deep dive on that. Next week, uh, Thursday, we are back with an Andrew Bujalski double of uh, Mutual Appreciation and Computer Chess. Uh, I love Andrew Bujalski. I remember seeing Mutual Appreciation uh, just a year or two after it came out in 2005, and uh, it was part of what's called Mumblecore now. Uh, (laughs) I don't know whether you can thank or blame my generation for that. I think Bujalski and I are almost the exact same age. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, like Bujalski himself says, I, I don't really think it's fair to label that on him. Mutual appreciation is just one of those movies that really captures 2005. Amazingly. It's a bit of a love triangle and a few nights in an apartment, as a a guy in a band crashes with his married friends and there's some sexual tension between him and the wife, but he's also really good friends with the husband. And it's, it's almost like an Eric Romero piece. It's great. And then computer chess goes in really weird places. It was shot on VHS equipment and uh, go become sci-fi. And it's just this great computer chess convention in 1982. That's the premise. And uh, that is in the same hotel as a swingers convention. Uh, and it's just dynamite. Um, then on Friday, 
you will hear this next week, but I'll just tee it up. We're going to be doing two nights Adam Sandler, two early, early Adam Sandlers, uh, Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison, both on 35. And then on Saturday, two uh, mid and late period Adam Sandler, that's sort of the art house flip side of Adam Sandler, which is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love and the Softy Brothers' uh, Uncut Gems. And uh, we wanted to do an evolution of Adam Sandler uh, series. It just uh, look at four movies that show 360 degrees of Adam Sandler. And uh, I hope you'll take a chance on that. He's a really fascinating guy, and his choices have been fascinating. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson and the Softies really found a way to harness his immense, what he does and what he brings in his persona into really amazing movies. I mean, Uncut Gems, I will wager over time, is going to be... Uh, uh, and Punch Drunk Love just really remembered creative indie movies. And it's just funny to then look at his, what people would call his low, dumb comedies, but ever, but they're very funny and they brought a lot of joy to a lot of teenagers. And they're also very comedically creative. So I hope you'll check that out. And uh, then our entire January 2022 is up. So just go to secretmovieclub.com to see everything we're doing. January 19th, we kick off our John Ford Director of the Year with Ford Apache on 35mm. I think a great movie to start with because it really represents its mid-period Ford. It was made in uh, 1947. Uh, Although you could probably classify that almost as late period Ford because he's already been making movies for 30 years and he would go on to make movies for 20 more years. But um, uh, we'll get into more of that. I'll I'll get into more John Ford uh, coming up. And also, uh, our film festival's finally up, our 2021 Los Angeles Rises Film Festival. So please, uh, really, the easiest thing is just Google um, Secret Movie Club Cinema 35 Los Angeles Rises, and it'll pop up. It's, I believe, 11 short films. And uh, the movie makers, most of them under five minutes, and uh, the movie makers get interviewed. So if you're looking for some inspiration, look at some shorts and want to make some shorts in 2022, check that out. Uh, and, uh, also final thing I'll just say, remember at the end of January at the million dollar theater on Saturday, January 29th, we are doing dumb and dumber on 35 with uh, the Ferrelli brothers and co-screenwriter Bennett Yellen. So we also want 2022 to ign- inaugurate more filmmakers coming in to talk about how they did it and inspire us and really build our community of movie lovers and movie makers. So if you're in the Southern California area, uh, please, um, you know, come listen to the Ferrelli brothers. You can ask them about Kingpin. There's something about Mary, whatever. Um, and Bennett Yellen. Uh, and we have other speakers and other exciting things uh, on the horizon, but I don't want to announce those till those are locked, locked, locked. So there you go. As always, you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. You can check out everything we do. Just Google Eventbrite and secretmovieclub.com to get tickets or go to secretmovieclub.com to, to see everything from original content to the film fest to all our backlog of podcasts. All of that's free. Uh, and uh, We'd love for you, you know, to become part of our community of of film lovers and and filmmakers, movie lovers, movie makers. Uh, And there you go. So let's get to it. All right. Uh, Enough. This is going to be a long one. Uh, These are three different conversations had with three different friends about a whole bunch of different movies. And uh, they're stitched together. Uh, I I hope you enjoy the audio editing on this. Uh, I tried to just keep the best of the best, but capture what it's like to just have one of those great winding, uh, not to get highfalutin because certainly they're not, 
not like this. But in that great way that Russian novels, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky novels, somehow are so tight uh, and yet at the same time so digressive. I don't know how the Russians do that. Uh, I I think the best movie conversations are the same. So uh, let's get to it. Hope you enjoy. And uh, happy 2022. Yeah, so shout of a doubt. Interestingly, uh, I want you to start. Um, if you, I'm happy to, but please do. You want? Okay, this is a movie from okay, 1943, so, uh, I believe. So uh, we'll set it up. Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock's personal favorite of all the movies he made. Although I think he says that with a bit of qualification. I think probably Hitch is. I mean, I can't speak for him, but I, I you know, he may even be more proud of other movies. But he, he goes back to Shadow of a Doubt as, I think, a moment where he knew, as a filmmaker, he really achieved something, mm-hmm. whether or not it was acknowledged by everybody. Interestingly, I think it's a movie that um, gains cachet over time among people who love movies, as evidenced by the fact that I thought Shadow of a Doubt, when we showed it for Secret Movie Club, was going to be 30 people. And we had 120. Yeah. Uh, we had 80 people walk up or 70 people walk up. And only 90 walk out. <laughs> oh, nobody walked out. Nobody walked although we did have a splice. We did have a, it, it broke in the projector. There was a technical failure. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But people stayed. Yeah. And, and, but, um, okay, so uh, we showed in May a bunch of Hitchcock films. And as our last Hitchcock, we showed Shadow of a Doubt, 1943, Joseph Cotton, Teresa Wright, and a great cast Donald of... Carey Don Carey. <laughs> as the uh, detective. McDonald Carey is famous because he was on Days of Our Lives for 30 years. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Was was he the detective she marries or she's going to marry? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. He becomes the head of the family on Days of Our Lives. He's like a senior citizen at that point. But from the late 70s until the 2000s, he was on Days of Our Lives. I never knew that. And uh, her father, sorry. Henry Travers. Clarence yeah. from It's a Wonderful right, Life. Right, right, and and then the uh, his friend Hume Cronin. Right. What's the character's name? Cocoon. Uh, but Hume, I can't remember. He's the neighbor. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so there are other famous people, or not famous, but people of note in that movie. Uh, totally. Yeah. Um. And, but Joseph Cotton, and and basically, uh, so the premise is, um, a man is known as the Merry Widow Killer, Joseph Cotton. We know this from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And he's at the end of his rope. He's going to be caught. And he decides he's going to go back to his family. The, the script was written by Thornton Wilder with uh, Hitchcock and Alma Rivea. I, I wish I could say her name right. Hitchcock's wife. Yeah. Alma Hitchcock. Um, and, and one other woman. And one other woman. Who I looked up and she had an interesting was screenwriting she, she career. She was Hitch's... I, tell me. Tell me. She wrote Viva Las Vegas. Oh, wow. Yeah. Or was a credited writer on Viva Las Vegas. I don't know how many people wrote that. So or the, if anyone wrote that movie. <laughs> well, there were a, a number of writers yeah. uh, on Shadow. But but they were a team for sure. And and essentially, so, serial killer Uncle Charlie decides the only way I'm going to get out of this is to go home. And, and basically go in hiding. And he, at home, is his niece, who's named after him. Her name is also Charlie. And she reveres him and idolizes him. The whole family does. They have no idea about his, his what he really does, that he's a killer. And he comes home, and initially everyone is overjoyed, mostly. And then there is this horrible breaking of illusion for niece Charlie as she comes to realize that her uncle might be the Merry Widow killer. That would be my 
That's great. Synopsis. Yeah. And you and I saw it just a few days ago, right. a week ago, essentially, a little less than a week, uh, Memorial Day. And um, I would just put out there, um, it has always been in my top five Hitchcocks. Um, I love it. And my favorite hitch is, is Rear Window, for sure, for sure. Um, almost heads and tails. Although I'm at the point where I've seen it so many times, I don't want to see it too many times. Mm-hmm. But I love her window. But Shadow to me is this movie where it's it's the gift that keeps on giving. You, you know, I think about this a lot. There are movies where the first time you see them, you're like, oh my gosh. And then you see them again and they're less than what you remembered. I would put forward many of the movies that win Best Picture. I would also say Spies Like Us. <laughs> Right, Carrie Grant's like, excuse me, <laughs> I do believe you're sitting on my penis, and then you know it's that was that like, was a line in North by Northwest. No, that was a line from Dana Carvey. Oh. Anyway, but <laughs> they shoot him straight on, you know, like like this is the car, and but behind them there's got to be something, so they rear project the. Uh, uh, the cars, and they got really good at it in Psycho, it, it, because like the cop car that comes oh, up yeah, behind, yeah. and that's off in the back, and you can tell it's it's a projected image behind them, and they're in the studio. Uh, we could tell today, but, but but you know what's funny about all that stuff? Hey, keep going. I'm sorry. What are you going to say? No, um, so like like you can tell she's looking back at the cop car. It, it's the cop car, and then. For, they must have gotten shots on location because the cop goes off to the right and takes an exit right as she was like, is he following me? Because he had already stopped her. He had already stopped Janet Lynn. Right, right. After she was running away from the, uh, with the $40,000. Right. So, but yeah, let's go back. No, the, but let's, no, with the, the conversation will go wherever. So, so rear projection that the funny thing about that though. Yeah. That I was, is. Now, you know, you never know because, like, I'm talking as a 40-year-old, and I don't know how a 15-year-old would feel. I, but, you know, like, that never takes me out. And it's funny uh, how much you can take if it's a good story. Like, it's yeah. totally reprojection. They're clearly in a studio. They're clearly yeah. driving. And sometimes, I don't know if you notice this, in Casablanca, it's the only time I've really noticed it, but they yeah. dissolve the background while they're still in the car. <laughs> they, they did that for real. Yeah, so they're like driving, and it's Bergman and Bogart, and then yeah. uh, they're driving, and then it dissolves to a totally different background of them in the forest or something, and they didn't cut or anything. It's they're still in the car, and you just go with it. You're like, okay, yeah. I guess they're in the forest yeah. now. <laughs> but it, 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 but I was saying, have you ever seen that uh, Robert Mitchum movie Thunder Road? Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, dude. When you get a chance. I mean, that's a conversation for another day. But it's it's Robert Mitchum, who I love, and he plays a bootlegger yeah. in, like, uh, I want to tell you, it's, like, Nashville or something. And Jeb, yeah. but, he, but he's, like, uh, he he's in the, the mountains, and he's making moonshine. And mm-hmm. he, it's, like, the only movie he directed, but there's a really famous scene where it's so cheaply done, and Bob Mitchum didn't care, that they're like these two characters talking, and they shot part of it in a real location, and then when yeah. it cuts to the reverse, it's literally yeah. a dude in front of a painted backdrop of a tree in a park. And really? You, yeah, and you watch it, and you're like, oh, but then you're like, ah, oh, whatever, and you it's just... Keep... It's a movie. Yeah, it's a movie. Oh, man. I mean, that's a whole... Thing. And we'll, we'll loop around. So, speaking of that, mm-hmm. the Star Trek 2. Star Trek 2, Wrath of Khan. Yeah, well, but you know, you, we were talking earlier when we were talking about um, 
Alien uh-huh. about how sci-fi sci-fi is the world of ideas. Yeah. And I think no franchise, franchise, because mm-hmm. I would say 2001 is the best sci-fi movie of all time, personally. But no franchise taps into that like Star Trek, which has Certainly. always been about ideas. And um, Star Trek Two: Wrath of Khan... Now, I haven't seen all the Star Trek movies. Okay. And I think you may be more of a Trekkie than I am. I've seen one, two... We prefer Trekkers. Or Trek, sorry. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't care. But, but I will say, just to lay this up, you know, and I know everyone knows this history. So Star Trek One came out, yeah. directed by Robert Wise, mm-hmm. Sound and Music, West, West Side Story. I'm actually a fan of Star Trek One. I, I know, I, I, think, I think it's too long. I don't know that the payoff is worth all that buildup. I think there, I think it's a slow movie to be sure. Sure. But I think the Voyager Vigor thing, I find personally like I'm gratified. I think that's a cool plot point. To be honest, I haven't seen that movie in so long because I think that when I watched it the first time, I fell asleep. Right. It's slow. And then maybe fell asleep two more times trying to finish it over the next couple nights, and I never revisited it. I'd be curious to see it again, but. It, it is slow, it, despite a kind of a cool plot point. Yeah, kind of a cool premise. Well, and and so the 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 I just want to go on the record as saying I actually enjoy Star Trek One. It would also be a movie if you put it on, I'd watch mm-hmm. it again. However, having seen, uh, I will just say I've seen one, two, three, four, five. Mm-hmm. Didn't see Undiscovered Country, which I want to talk about a little bit. Um, didn't see any of the Patrick Stewarts. Which I would I need to, um, and then saw the two Abrams, but didn't see Ugh. the third uh, one that was directed by Justin Lin. I think that just came out a little bit ago. Of all of the ones I've seen, mm-hmm. Star Trek Two Heads and Tails is the best one. Yeah, for me. What do you think? I remember liking the first Next Generation one. I think it's oh, I don't remember what it's called, but I haven't seen it since Generation, it right? Generations? Because Kirk's no, the one. No, not the one that overlapped. The one, the first pure Next Generation one with Kirk and Picard. And I don't remember what it's called. Um, Is the Borg in it? Oh, shoot. I feel like it's a time travel one. Hmm. And I feel like, oh, what's the name of the actor, the Scottish actor who was in Babe? Oh, James Cromwell. James Cromwell was in it. Hmm. And I can't remember what it's called. I liked it, but I liked it. I both liked it in 96 or 97 and last saw it in 96, 97. So that says that. Do you, would you take it over? Um, I'm going to look it up while we talk. Would you take it over Wrath of Khan? No, I don't think so. I'm just saying that was one that I liked. I mean, there, five and six are terrible. I barely remember them. Is Undiscovered Country not that great? I, I couldn't even tell you what happens in it. I mean, if someone was to give me a couple hints, I'd remember it, I guess, but... Here we go. Is that the one where they go First to... Contact. First Contact, yeah. Is Undiscovered Country the one where they go to the center of the universe and meet God? No, that's, that's five. That's, that's Final Frontier. That's the worst one. That is... Yeah, yeah that might be the worst. I'm sorry to Mr. Shatner. <laughs> Mr. Shatner directed it, but... Uh, there you go. The um, no Final Frontier I've never seen, but it's the one where like the Klingons are going to become part of the Federation, oh, and then yeah. there's a sabotage. It's it's you know it's 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 best that I remember. It, it's an entertaining movie, and nothing more, nothing less. I haven't seen it. It was directed by Nicholas Meyer. Oh. Um, yeah, who did Star Trek Two right. Um 
But, yeah, what are you going to say? Nicholas Meyer, who I read uh, when he got hired to direct Star Trek II, had never even really, I don't even think, seen an episode of the original series. He had to be given, he had to be briefed on the franchise. But, see, this is the thing that I find, so I want to throw this out, because I listened to some Nicholas Meyer interviews. Uh Uh-huh. Only knew him as the Star Trek II Wrath of Khan director. Realized he was this author. He directed a H.G. Wells picture. Yeah. Um, you know, he's still working today. Uh, he's still done tons of projects. Actually ended up doing the stories on a few other Star Trek pictures. But uh, he said something, which you probably heard too, that I loved. And, and, and I think that great sci-fi, I love when I hear this. Uh-huh. So the story I heard, if I'm telling it right, was... He was like, I don't know how to do this movie. And like, you know, I'm a, I'm a New York author and I, I'm in a Star Trek movie. And then he was like, but you know, I love the novels about the Napoleonic Wars and the captains that fight the Napoleonic Wars on the ships. Uh-huh. And he was like, that's what I'm going to do. This is about a captain who this is the last time he can go out and fight a Napoleonic War. And he's going to fight this pirate that like he's never vanquished. And it's going to just invigorate him again. And when you see Star Trek Two, it's really a, sense. it's a movie about a boat captain fighting like the pirate that he never totally vanquished. That makes total sense. And it, it, so much down to one of the things I don't like about Star Trek Two is all the ridiculous, you know, old timey naval shit that's in it. And right. So much their, their uniforms, so much so that um, the. Uh, What's that whistle they do? The sort of call to. You know, oh, I, I about? just saw it a few weeks ago. Yeah. Do they do that? They do. Oh. Uh, oh, you mean taps? Do they play taps? No, they play taps. There's a. There's a. It's like some a sort, boatswain's call. Yes, that's what it is. Oh, okay. And you're like, oh, this seems dumb. Huh. But. You know, it is interesting that the, what's considered the best Star Trek movie is from a total outsider because he wasn't a slave to the Star Trek canon and the Star Trek mystique. And he and wasn't doing fan servicing. Yeah. Well, there, yeah. And I'm sure you know all this and our mm. audience knows it, so I don't want to belabor people with stories they already know, but, you know, it's weird how sometimes the great movies, they're great because people get put on them and they inherit things they have to do and then they figure out these really clever ways yeah. to do that. And so I know you know the story and our audience knows the story. I'll tell it real quickly. But like supposedly they had six scripts and Nicholas Meyer came on and the the producer said, you know, I don't even know if you want to do this kid because in 12 days, like we've already hired Lucasfilm. ILM is doing the effects. We got to have a script in 12 days. And Meyer said, uh, I'll write it. Just give me the scripts and I'm just going to take what I like from this one. And it was yeah. like one was about the Genesis project. One was about Khan. One was where Kirk had a kid. And he was like, he just took them. But but the the thing was the only way they could get Nimoy on was to tell him that they were going to kill him off. Right. Because Nimoy just did not want to do another Star Trek movie. And I think... Apparently he didn't like money. <laughs> well, and then he did. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, then he... <laughs> He didn't want anything to do with Star Trek until he wanted to direct one or two of them. Then it was all about Star Trek. Yeah, and he mellowed. Or, yeah. But but it's but but the thing I think that makes Star Trek two also really good is in a fan service movie. Yeah, and I guess people would take issue maybe because they do this in, in Star Wars all the time. But like when Spock dies, you're like, whoa, 
you know, and it's a sacrifice. Yeah. And and it's this probably the most emotionally wrenching moment in the Star Trek franchise because really it's a love story between Kirk and Spock. I mean, in some ways, in some ways yeah. Kirk and Spock. I mean, you know, Kirk has a wife and a kid, and they just like show up, and he's like, "Oh, I got a wife, I got a kid." Well, not my wife, an old girlfriend. Right, old girlfriend. Yeah. Right, they had to part ways. Yeah, he was off uh, exploring the galaxy. What would you do if an old girlfriend showed up and you had a twenty-three-year-old son? I don't know. I'd question. hope he was cool. <laughs> What would, what would that Otherwise, be? I'd be really bummed. <laughs> but who's this dork? Um, I don't know. It's a good question. But <laughs> so before we go down that rabbit yeah. hole, yeah. Well, it's exactly what you're saying. So all these other Star Trek movies are just—they are—they're fan service. They're like a, you know, they're, they're oh. This is going to be great because everyone's going to, you know, everyone's going to bring baggage to the table and they're going to understand why this plot's interesting. This is a guy who said, no, I don't know what this is about. I don't know anything about Star Trek. Sure, I, I, I'm sure he must know who Kirk and Spock were and that's about it. Yeah, and he's not dumb. He's not dumb. He's going to get up to speed. But he w- sought out to make a movie that was interesting with or without these characters. Right. Which is... Maybe, you know, we'd have to think about all Star Trek movies, but it might be the only movie that if you just made it non-Star Trek and just made it about a space captain and an old nemesis, might still work. Well, and the other thing, too, and I'm I'm just riffing on on the thing I said earlier, having seen it in the theaters just a month ago when Uh we played it, you know, the the third act is essentially a naval battle. I mean, it's essentially Khan is in a ship and Kirk is in a ship. Yeah. And they're circling each other. And, you know, it's funny. We live in a period now in 2018 where I don't know that too many new folks are being really obsessed with naval battles. Right. But naval battles are pretty fascinating um, in terms of war and and how you fight a naval battle because of what it takes to ride a ship and turn a ship mm-hmm. and when you're exposing your flank and all that stuff. And Kirk does this thing where they go into the like nebula cloud. Yeah. And then suddenly they're like, but then Khan does this thing where he's like, F it, I'm going to blow this thing up. Right. I got the ace hole. I got the Genesis device. Yeah. Um, and they wrote, and the thing is they can't go warp speed. Right. So then Spock has to go in and like fix yes. the engine. Um, and, uh, but when you watch it, the movie slows down for this naval battle between two minds and I think this goes to this thing why I think Star Trek II works really well, and I just want to put it to you. Khan and Kirk, when you think about it, their names both begin with K. Yeah. He's doing this thing of doppelganger where Kirk is a brilliant captain and he takes risks. Khan is a brilliant, I mean, it's like a Superman, yeah. um, but he takes risks. Like, Khan could have just taken, like, even one of his, his like, village people, people yeah. are like, let's just take the ship and go, like... F. Kirk. And he's like, no. You know. Well, he's, at Ka- he's Ahab. He's Captain Ahab. Yeah, I'm like, I've got to kill Kirk. I think he actually quotes Ahab, if, I, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. At the end, right? Yeah. With well, my with, final breath. So, well, here's the thing. I don't know if you know this, but they couldn't get Ricardo Montalban and the Star Trek cast at the same time. Because he was doing Fantasy Island. Yeah, so, there's, so they... And this is one of the... the I think one of the things that could have put the film over the top. I and mean, when you think about it, you, you don't realize that when you watch a movie, but 
they never meet face to face. Right. And I think that is a failing of the movie. Mm. Uh, um, for the build up, you want to see them face to face. They just see each other on monitors. This is a production issue that they ran into, and you don't notice it when you're watching. It's sort of after the fact. But that being said, it does slow down in the third act. They kind of make up for it the fact that like Kirk outsmarts him with his 24th or 23rd century thinking. Right. 2D versus 3D. But... It's... I lost my train of thought there. Well, you, it, it sounds it, it, like you have some misgivings, some hesitations yeah, about Star I feel Trek, like yeah. when I... So when I watched it, and because we haven't really... We've talked about the, the big things in the movie. I haven't talked about the movie in Nuts and Bolts. It starts off great. This is, you know, we, this is a, these are characters we saw 15 years ago on TV. Right. We saw them in a movie that was successful, but not over-the-top successful. In fact, you know, they actually kicked uh, Roddenberry uh, to the curb to a certain extent. They took him out of... They removed creative control. Right. And they thought that he was the problem with Star Trek One. So they took it away from him. Who knows what the movie would have been with him in charge. Have you heard that story? Can I tell you real quick? Sure. And I want to do... This I'll tell real quickly, because I... So Roddenberry pitched Star Trek Uh 2, and his pitch was the Klingons discover that they can rule the universe if they go back to one moment in time, and they change that one moment in time. And that one moment in time is the JFK assassination, and they go back to make sure that JFK can live, and then the Star Trek crew goes back to 1963, and Spock is the man on the grassy knoll who kills JFK <laughs> so that the uh, Klingons don't rule the universe. And I guess Paramount read that like treatment and was like, no. It's funny. On I, I didn't know that. I knew it was about JFK, but I didn't know uh, that specifically about Spock. On one hand, you're like, this is great sort of late 70s, early 80s commentary on and, and just a twist of, you know, a, a take on a, a moment that really shook America. On the other hand, it doesn't sound like Star Trek. I was about to say that sounds like a really great Twilight Zone movie. Right, yeah. But I do think the idea of Spock on the on the grassy knoll, though, kind is of kind offensive. of great. <laughs> I think it's great. <laughs> but I got being said, like, I don't see how that would just be, how that would just wouldn't become silly. Right. Spock and Kirk running around 1963 Dallas or whatever. Right. Um, well, and so, so, but it's to your point. So they took yeah. him off. Nicholas Meyer rewrote the story, yeah. and you were, and then your misgivings about the movie. So I think it starts off, starts dynamite. It starts dynamite, and we got you know Admiral Kirk. Although I gotta be honest, the opening with Kirstie Alley, and they do the Kobayashi Maru, and it, it kind of strange, you know, credulity, credulity. because <laughs> I know it's supposed to be a set on a, a star base, but. They got explosions going off, and she's doing it with Spock and Bones and Sulu, I think, is there, and, and, and Uhura, and, and they're all acting as if they're dead. And you're just like, oh, this is ridiculous. That being said, the whole thing with, with Kirk, and, and, and he's he's been promoted. It's like that age-old thing where he should be happy with his promotion, but of course he's not. Right. Because, you know, he's 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 just withering away, and gets the glasses as a present doesn't even know what they are there's all this stuff about age and then of course he gets back in the saddle by necessity because he's happens to be on the ship when they need him but he's been made a desk jockey yeah it's it's the you know it's the death of uh you know the death of you know the cowboy or something like that right and 
So it starts off great, and Khan's great, and Chekhov's on the planet, and they get the things in the ears, and oh. it's really, like, it's still, what is this, 35 years later, it's it's a little hard to watch. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's great stuff, and, and, and Ricardo Montalban's acting his balls off, and on one hand, it's totally cheesy, on the other hand, it's it, what holds, it's the glue that holds the movie together. He's so ridiculous, but so captivating. Right. And he's putting on a clinic, <laughs> but then, like... You know, Kirk and the kid, and that doesn't, that's, it's weird, it's not... And the really kid's got, like, a tennis sweater. Yeah, that's the thing, too, everyone's... And also, one of the other scientists doesn't have sleeves on his shirt, and he's got, like, you know, they like, showing off his arms, you're like, what kind of space station is this? But, uh, like, that's not fully realized, or fleshed out, or explored, and then, like, his old girlfriend, and then, you're right, then it just gets into this sort of, like, space naval battle, and I... I think what holds the second half of the movie together is Khan. Well, but, but this is the... So the thing to me that's really interesting that I think great movies do, mm-hmm. and it goes back to Shakespeare, is... And Kurosawa does it brilliantly. Um, is your villain needs to be, in his own way, completely justified in his logic... And a shadow character of your hero. Right. To the point where you realize that what separates your hero from your villain are things that are f- in some ways fairly fragile. That your hero could be the villain in different circumstances and the villain could be the hero. And then it's this mm-hmm. battle of wills. And I think it's often better when your villain is... I always think it's better when your hero is below the villain. And your hero starting yeah. from a, a, a subordinate position of you're like, how is this hero going to beat this villain? This villain's just too good. Right. You know, I think that's always better. It, it always seems to work. Like you and I love Indiana Jones, and Indiana Jones is always starting behind the eight ball. You know, I mean, he always like taking on the Nazis, <laughs> and he's always just like, okay, <laughs> I yeah. guess I'll figure this out. Um, but I think I think in Star Trek two too. You get Kirk and Khan. And what you're saying is when you talk about like a clinic, yeah. I mean, when you talk about two folks that love to chew scenery, I mean, you got Shatner oh. and Montauban. Shatner's ridiculous. And, and I mean, not to mention the rest of them, Bones. And then James Doohan's just doing his <laughs> thing. And he's got the weird nephew who dies. And there's like I don't know, you, I don't think you saw it in the theatrical, but there's some extra stuff. I think the only DVD right now is a director's cut that's got extra stuff of his nephew that's just awful. Oh really? Oh no, we didn't see that. We no. saw the theatrical. You're better off for it, but still, there's that scene where like they get attacked by Khan. Do they eat haggis and quote <laughs> some Robert Burns poetry? No, but anyway, so I'll tell you in a second. But yeah. remember, there's a scene they get attacked, and he's like. Damage report, and then, like, you know, he goes to leave the bridge, and then James Doohan's then holding, like, this crewman. Right, yeah. And you're both like, aww. That, so that's, that's, that's supposed to be Scotty's nephew. Oh. That not really, uh, uh No, that's not, not established. Really clear in the movie. But, like, there's a scene where Kirk is doing a inspection. He goes and inspects the, um, the, uh, the, the engineering, and this one ensign or whatever sort of almost, like, talks back to him. He's like, Sir, this is a fine ship, and I mean, if you can't see it yourself, you don't know, you, you know, your elbow from a, you know, space creature. You know, he says some space creature was supposed to laugh. Right. And it's, it's like at a Happy Days or something, and, and he's like, 
and that's but and and he goes over to uh, you know Sky. He's like, "What's this guy?" He has like, "Oh, it's my uh, my sister's kid." You, you know, he's real gung ho or whatever. Huh? So they they wrote in Scotty's nephew and then gets killed. And we're supposed to be like, "Oh, oh, Scotty's nephew it's got like, killed." Like if Scrooge McDuck lost Huey, yeah. <laughs> I'd be way more torn up if Scrooge McDuck lost Huey than Scotty losing his annoying nephew who talked back to the captain. You just don't do that. Right. Well, well, that's the funny thing is that I think in many ways, Star Trek II shows its age. It is a movie from 1982, yeah. complete with that thing where they talk about the Genesis device and it's like the first prolonged CGI effect yeah. where they show the, the planet and stuff. Um, and there's certainly, there's certainly a lot that like also there's a scene in the movie where Kirstie Alley shows up in like a slinky silk negligee. And in the elevator, and she's oh, yeah. like, and she's just talking to Kirk, and you're like, oh, Kirstie Alley. They just she's got her long hair, and, that, and then Bones makes a mention of it, yeah. And and you're like, oh, they, you know, they made you do this scene. <laughs> <laughs> and But for why? It's not like she's... Yeah, the, the scene does not move the plot forward. Yeah, and it's not like her uh, Other than Kirk's like... Sexy. And also Kirk's like, I think I'd like to bone her, but I won't. That's like literally the point of that scene. <laughs> yeah, it pays off in no way. Right. Um, and, and, but, you know, in this weird way that movies that work, work. Uh-huh. You know, it, it's funny because I think most of us, if we're being brutal and honest, right? No bullshit. No, I'm going to just like defend this movie because I'm going to defend this movie. If we have these moments of humility where it's like, okay, enough bullshit. Work or doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Star Trek 2 works. Sure. And it works, I think, because it's the story of a captain who comes alive again. Yeah. A- and he, he comes back and he's like, you know, it's like Color of Money. I mean, it's literally, you could show Color of Money in Star Trek 2. It's literally like, uh, I'm back. Well, yeah. So much so that besides Spock... None of the other Star Trek characters have anything to do in the movie. Oh, yeah, Sky doesn't yeah. have anything to do. That's why they, I assume why they gave him a nephew to have <laughs> one emotional scene. Yuhura's got nothing to do. Sulu's got nothing to do. Chekhov does have something to do, but strictly plot. Has nothing to do with Chekhov, the character. Right. Um, Bones is just there to be... Bones. Yeah, and, and also just to comment on Kirk. And then, I don't even know if Spock has that much to do until the end. I mean, it really is a movie about Kirk and Khan. Right. So much so that they could have replaced everyone else, and no one would give a shit. Right. I and, and I. It's funny you you. You know, how, hmm. who can we put? <laughs> We're gonna have Ricardo Montalban chewing up the scenery, and he won't be the most ridiculous actor in the movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> we still got Shatner. Yeah, but that Shatner's that Shatner's shining moment. I mean, yeah. you know the. the Okay, so I, I, it's funny. I, I wonder how William Shatner feels being this strange icon of our generation. Because Shatner almost means something yeah. to like our generation that I, I think even William Shatner must be a bit confused by. But um, but it's also a testament to him that, I mean, you know, here's a guy who's been acting for 50 plus years and he's relevant in his way to, to each successive generation. So, you know, Bill Shatner has nothing to apologize about anything. But... That Shatner acting, um, 
it never was a better fit than in Star Trek Two. I mean, I find Shatner a lot of fun yeah. in Star Trek Two. I think it, I think it's William Shatner's. I mean, would you? Is there another time where he was better, more enjoyable, where it was a better fit? <sighs> that that's a tough one. I haven't seen the other movies in so long. The but, TV shows might be a different question. Yeah, he's got some. F- I, uh, I feel like he's got a couple of good scenes in Star Trek Three, but it's been a long time. Yeah, because that when he's got another nemesis to cling on. I can't remember the whole plot. I can't. kills a guy in a fun way. I will say that. Um, Draws him a hot bath. <laughs> so this L- is it. L- Lufas him to death. Yeah. Um, no, you, you may right. It's it's two leads chewing up the scenery, and that's fun to watch. It is fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Connor's like, this is City Alpha 6. <laughs> or City Alpha 5, whatever. And we didn't even mention the fact that he yells Khan. <laughs> which is ridiculous. Ridiculously awesome. Or just ridiculous. <laughs> depending on the way you see it. And what I would say about Shadow, and I just want to throw this to you, is... Okay. Oh, you want to talk about Shadow of a Doubt? I would. Oh, okay. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. All right. Sorry, man. Sorry to be a downer. Um, <laughs> sorry to harsh your buzz, man. Um, the, um, to me, Shadow actually does this very weird thing. They're both named Charlie. They're doppelgangers. He's a killer. In the end, she kills him, so she becomes a killer. She has it in her to kill. He has killed. They're both exceptional in comparison to everything around them. She is exceptional, but has some kind of moral compass. In the traditional sense, killing is bad. He is exceptional, doesn't have that moral compass, but has a view of the world that's very hard to refute, which is that, I mean, there's that line where he says, the world is hell. What does it matter what we do in it? Which is about the most badass thing a villain can say to a good person, to be like, you know it's hell, I know it's hell, that I kill people in the grand scheme of the universe has no import whatsoever. Well, this is like Harry Lyon in The Third Man. Harry Lyon, right? And I think that when you're somebody who does believe in ethics and morality and some kind of karmic, cosmic, transcendent something, which I do, that is the toughest argument to face. Because I think the strongest argument atheists can put to believers is... Are you seeing things as they really are? Or are you seeing them as you want to see them? And Uncle Charlie, Joseph Cotton, arguably sees things as they really are. And says to Charlie, all this shit about humans killing humans and whatever, bullshit. Humans kill humans. That's a given. I just see through it. And I'm getting mine. You're hung up with Americana and religion and the church and what everybody has told you. But that's your thing. You're hung up with systems. I'm not hung up by systems. But the thing about the movie that I love 
is that Charlie, Uncle Charlie, he's like at the end of his rope and he says it. Whether you think that what I just said is a fiction or there's bearing to it, Uncle Charlie can't exist in the world. He's at the end of his rope, even if he's seeing too clearly. Niece Charlie, Teresa Wright, is terrified because she's as intelligent as Uncle Charlie, and they have a psychic bond, and they can see through the illusion, but she refuses to go where Uncle Charlie goes. It's interesting. So they make a point a couple times in the movie of emphasizing that Charlie says to her uncle, we are the same person, or, or uncle says to Charlie, we are the same person. Right. Make that very clear, right? So Charlie, uh, Uncle Charlie, Joseph Cotton. Yeah. Yes, but he also has an insanity in him because he, is, he has this mania, this fixation about widows who are living off of the riches that their husbands have made. And he thinks that it's disgusting and that they need to be killed. So it's not a rational person. He's not a rational person. He right. sees the world in a like ants. He's in, fair enough. He's insane. Yeah. He has a When com- it comes to widows. He's and and it's that's that's true and yeah. that's emphasized. At the end he's going to kill that poor woman. Yeah. And you see him kind of flirting with her and he identifies her as a widow. She's wearing a veil and he's drawn to her immediately at the bank. And he's like, "Oh, tell me more about you, Miss Green." <laughs> I'm Mrs. Green, actually. Oh, really? It's very... It's great, yeah. But for Charlie, the girl, the teenage girl, she is now entering the world of adults for the first time. And so she... The scales are falling from her eyes. And she has to make sense of how the world... How the world is as it really is. Right. And she's leaving her friends behind. And she's growing up too fast not too fast. She's going up at a faster rate than her friends are. Poor Catherine, her friend. <laughs> With all those weird looks. Yeah, she's like Hitch- yeah, Hitchcock was just like, I need you to look him up and down like <laughs> you just want to jump him. Yeah. And I need to do that 8 times in the movie. She's a girl. Charlie is an adult. Right. And that's the difference. Is that Charlie is able to look at adults as an adult would. And Catherine is still like, I don't know what I'm dealing with here at all. I don't know if that's it, though. You don't think so? No, I think Catherine... I would would frame it just a little differently. I think Catherine um, is adult in that, like all of us, she has sexuality. Mm -hmm. And and she, you know, these, these men are here, and they're in their 20s, and she is 17 or 16, and... She's seeing them through the prism of romantic sexuality. And could you find me attractive? Okay. Whereas I think that what Charlie is seeing is I think Charlie is piercing beyond that veil. You know, I I think Charlie and Uncle Charlie, I think this is made clear in the film. No one else pierces the veil. Not even the the FBI dude. Um, But Charlie and Uncle, niece Charlie and Uncle Charlie are having a totally different conversation. Yeah. Than everybody else in the film. I agree. Yeah. And and niece Charlie and Uncle Charlie are having a conversation essentially about the worth or non worth of humanity. And the way that the world really works. The way the world really works. And I think that Uncle Charlie is putting forth acknowledging his mania, which I think is valid. Uncle Charlie is putting forth this still unsettling proposal. That if we really looked at the world the way it is, 
we're just animals. And animals are impulsive and petty and stupid. And animals deserve to be slaughtered. And niche Charlie, as anybody of any species, was some kind of, I think there's worth here even if I can't define it, reacts in horror that no, therein lies the end of what we've built. And Uncle Charlie's saying what we've built is built on illusion. And niece Charlie's saying illusion or not, I affirm it. Yeah. That's, I think, the central argument of Shadow of a Doubt. Now, why do you think... I don't think this is a a, um, stereotypical Hitchcock movie. Right. There isn't a huge set piece. The stakes are sort of small, in a sense, because he might be the killer, there might be another person who's the killer, he might get caught, he might not. It's not as if everything is pointing at him. There's always a way out. Right. And Charlie is the niece. Charlie is is kind of the focal point of this whole thing. She can blow it up, and she chooses not to. She decides to let Uncle Charlie go, or makes the decision that she won't tell the cops about him, and he can get away, but maybe he'll get caught, but it won't be. She could also say he's definitely the killer to the cops. Right. But she doesn't. So going back to Rear Window... (laughs) So, so, uh, what did you think of Rear Window? Yeah, the yeah. What were you, what was your takeaway watching it this week? I thought it was very exciting. I, I really, I really did like it. I know everybody talks about oh, it's about voyeurism. Of course, it's about voyeurism. It's all. I mean, we're all voyeurs. Well, I think that's why it's so successful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like. Because I think it taps into something we don't like to talk about, but we all on yeah. different levels do every day. Yeah, definitely. Well, I don't know if you ever, you know, there's a question I've always been really fascinated by, and I'll ask you first and we'll talk about it. And okay. and, I, and I don't know if I'm getting it right, but I know the I'm getting the question right, but the significance we'll have to talk about. The question is, if you could uh, get one of these wishes, which one would it be? Either the power of flight, you could fly, or the power yeah. to be invisible. Oh, fly. Definitely. And Fly, absolutely. That was yeah. like a no-brainer for me. And they were saying that that, but but for you and I, and it, and we're friends. But they were saying, I think, and I'll have to look this up. But if you wish for flight, it tends to mean that you're a dreamer, and yeah. you're not very realistic, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you don't really think through. Like if if you and I had the power of flight. You yeah. know, like at some point people would see us and then the government yeah. would get freaked out. And How about both of them at the same time? Well, no, nah, that, that wasn't an option. <laughs> um, That's not an option. I, under Article B of the statute, <laughs> I don't know. But but they were saying if you wish for invisibility, um, you're a very practical person because it's a, it's a, a talent that you could use. But yeah. you're not – it was – and I want to say this right, but – it, it, if you wish for invisibility, you're you can deal a little easier with the moral implications of what that means. You, you're not bothered by it. So, so they deal and then like get out of there. They just see the money going or like yeah. They were just saying that that if you wish for invisibility, you're you may not be thinking through the moral implications. And okay. if, and if you th- if you wish for flight, you're not necessarily thinking about the practical implication. So I guess it's just something about the difference between a dreamer and maybe a real pragmatist 
and it was just really interesting, but I'd have to look it up. I remember one time, uh, I was living in Centerville. This is like 16 years ago. Maybe maybe even longer, because I lived in Centerville twice. And I remember I was in my room, and it was late at night, and I was just, I could not get to sleep. It was one of those nights where I knew I had to get up in the morning and go to work, and I was like, damn, why can't I get to sleep? And I was so bored, and I was like, uh. And I heard this woman, like, like moan in pleasure, mm. like somebody was having sex. I immediately sat up straight, <laughs> and I went to the window, and I was like, what's that? What's that? And then I never heard it again. It was just like this one-time thing, and I was like, oh. Dude, it was a succubus. It was a succubus. <laughs> And she came to my door and she said, Brian, you give me $2, I'll make you a Really? So anyway. That's all the succubus <laughs> charge? Not, she doesn't want your soul or anything? Or to do her bidding in the world of the living? She just wants two bucks? Those two bucks. <laughs> the succubus. Those two bucks. I mean, that's really... Give me two bucks! <laughs> I'm gonna suck your dick. <laughs> you can say whatever you want, dog. I'll edit it and I'll, I'll give it to you before we post it so you can approve. <laughs> don't, don't censor. You know, talking about sex, because this is important, because that's the ultimate. That's yeah. like, because really, no, I don't want to watch some somebody kill someone. I don't want to see that. In, yeah. in, in a way, what Rear Window is, and the irony, of course, is he doesn't even see it. He just hears it in the movie. He's like sleeping and he hears the scream. Um, that's how he starts to like, whoa, what happened? But he is looking in all the other windows for sure. And he's looking in like Miss Lonely Heart's window and he looks yeah. into the newly. So he does look. And I think the newlyweds window, because I think hearing people have sex or catching people have sex is like the three sevens on the slot machine of voyeurism. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, yeah. and uh, when I, yeah, totally. And when I was <laughs> at USC, I lived in a two up, two down building, um, that you may have even come to at some point. I was there forever, but it was yeah. two, two up, two down. And the family downstairs was a Mexican family, the Flores family. And I became really good friends with them still to this day. And the dad, Jesus Flores, would sell uh, shrimp cocktails out of his van, ceviche cocktails. And it was delicious. Oh. I would buy that shit all the time. And then oh, like okay. a hard tortilla shell and marisco. So it was delicious. So when I would come home, he would often be coming home and we'd, we'd talk and he'd allow me to practice my Spanish with him. And, you know, Señor Jesus, como esta, que pasó, all that. Well, we're talking outside one day and the same thing. We were surrounded by two apartment buildings. One was a college building. One was uh, just a residential building. And yeah. we hear just like moaning and pleasure and not only moaning and pleasure, but like, like sh- this girl's having toastios. And she's, <laughs> I mean, like, like it, and, 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 and there was the college building. So they were probably in their, you know, teens or twenties. And, and just for the context of the story, I think I'm like 25 at the time, 24. And yeah, so yeah. senior Jesus and I were talking and, you know, we, at first we try to be like, not acknowledge it, you know, <laughs> and it just keeps going and, and it gets louder. And I mean, it's just like, I'm going to have to perform this a little for you. Forgive me. But I mean, like, it's literally like. Just she's just like oh my god oh yeah oh hit it oh oh yeah oh, you know yeah. and like and then Senior Jesus and I are listening and we stop and he looks at me and in Spanish she goes Goyo este es un sonido muy bonito 
It's like, Craig, this, this is a beautiful sound. And I was totally with him. I was like, that is a beautiful sound. And then he and I were just like, this is beautiful. The sound of lovemaking. This is great. I want to have a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really nerdy if we came to blows over movies. Peckinpah almost came to blows. I mean, that was with a porter, though. Okay. About what? Uh, I think uh, in, at the premiere of The Wild Bunch. So oh really? Yeah. What did the, the reporter say? I yeah, I think he was talking shit. Uh-huh. It was too violent. Peckinpah was a weird cat, though. Yeah. I mean the the I was talking to another buddy about this, and I think this deserves. I, I, first off, I I I really like Sam Peckinpah, and I am a huge fan of Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs. Mm-hmm. So I want to just go on the record, like I, a huge fan. Yeah. And I'm and I really like. Getaway and um, the Ballad of Cable Hogue and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Yeah, um, I like all of them. Even even uh, Ride the High Country. Not Ride. That's uh, no. It is yeah. okay. Ride the High Country. That was his first movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, and even uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Yeah. I really enjoy. Um, but with Peck and Paw, I never understood the thing he had with like the girlfriend of the lead. Getting boned by another dude. <laughs> Does it happen a lot? Or are we? No, I guess it. Does. There's a, there's cuckolding in every movie of his where, uh, not every, but like Straw Dogs is the yeah. biggest example where um, Hoffman is off shooting yeah. pigeons or something, and his wife gets raped slash kind of enjoys it from the dude in town, and you feel like what is this scene? And then and Alfredo Garcia, there's a rape scene, and then she gets killed. Does she get killed? Yeah, it's like really weird, but but it's but the weird thing is it's it's not filmed in a way where you're supposed to be appalled by it. It's filmed it's, in a yeah. way where you're supposed to get off on it. And the getaway uh, is it Sally Struthers? Yes, Struthers has a husband, uh-huh. and then he gets tied up, and then she's boning the outlaw dude in a shot I've never uh-huh. been able to forget. Where I was like, what is this? And he has it in like too many movies. You're right. For it not to be a thing of his. Yes. And 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 it's confusing because what you're seeing doesn't compute with the way it's shot. Yeah. And so it's confusing to the audience, especially confusing like to a young male, which is when I saw a lot of these movies. Anyway, what was your reaction watching Terminator 2 again? Terminator 1. Terminator 1, forgive me. Yeah, yeah we can talk about T2. But. Um, I hadn't seen it in a long time. And it's funny, you know, we, I keep saying this. I think you reach a certain age, and, and you. I keep finding this as I rewatch these movies. Some of these movies I haven't seen in 10, 15, 20 years, but I've seen them 5 to 10 times. And so, just to... And then maybe it's a testament to movies that they imprinted themselves in you. Because there are other movies I haven't seen in 10, 15 years. I couldn't remember anything about them. Right. But all these movies that we're talking about, especially The Terminator, and then when I rewatched T2 as well, I remember them. As scenes started, I remembered how they were going to go. I remember what was going to happen next. And it, 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 two decades, it doesn't matter. They left that strong of an imprint because uh, I saw them enough times. And so... There was stuff I remember from Terminator Crystal Clear, you know, but there was other specific scenes and specific shots and sequences like when he 
when he attacks her in that nightclub, I forgot what a dynamite scene that is. And Cameron shot that so brilliantly, even to the end where it, she's lying on the ground and you've never seen another, he's not a human being, but another human actor walk up so coldly, so purposefully to shoot her. And he shoots, he points at her, and he pulls the trigger and it's a blank. And he just, no panic, just starts to go reload. And it's just, I mean, dynamite stuff. And the way that he set up scenes and the way that he shot stuff to be edited together, I mean, you just knew. I had to think, if you saw it for the first time in 1984, is that when it came out? Or yeah, 85? 84. Um, even if you weren't a filmmaking person, or you just knew you were in the hands of a master. And so Cameron has thought everything out. Well, yeah, that's the thing. When you watch a Cameron movie, especially when he's at Prime, every scene is so well thought out, like you said. We talked about it earlier. We talked about Aliens briefly. Every scene works on its own and sets up either the next scene or a future scene. And, and the thing you talk about, the truck, I mean, the reason it... Sure, it's foreshadowing, but it's also, why does this guy, what is, this guy's a machine, he doesn't care if he runs over a truck. Totally, a kid's like, truck, totally. I mean, you can imagine if you, a human assassin. Might not m- ruin the might kid's not, truck. Might not ruin it, because it's just in our human nature to not run something over. You could be there to kill someone, and you might not run over a truck, because you just stop right before it. It takes no extra brain power or effort. But this guy doesn't, it's, it doesn't even occur to him. He just, that's where he stopped, on top of a truck. It's funny. She does the Liberty Valance thing of print the legend. You know, when the legend becomes the truth, print the legend. Mm-hmm. Which is, if I tell everybody, my mom will be destroyed. My family will be humiliated. Right. We will be pariahs. Her father will lose the job Her at the bank. Her father will lose the job yeah. at the bank. We housed a killer, and it it does not serve any practical purpose. This truth, so I'm going to let you go because she's smarter than everybody else. She is able to see this in the three dimensions. This is. tough truth, yeah. Um, but interestingly, the script or the filmmaker gives her the out of of Char- Uncle Charlie dying on the train. What would have happened if Uncle Charlie had killed that widow and went on killing? Yeah. I mean, how would we perceive niece Charlie's actions? In a way, as audience members, really she it was incumbent upon her to report him. Yes. For the greater good. For the greater good. Yeah. But she doesn't. No. So there's something interesting about that, too. And then the movie bails her out. Well, she's a teenager also, so right. you were able to say that she's conflicted. And Although, she she's 18 or 19, right? High school, I think. That's the feeling I got. Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, senior in high school. But out of high school. She's not in school. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's like summer or something. Something like that. Um, yeah, or, or junior college. I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember either. Yeah, it's fascinating because her mother is... Um, just kind of trying to keep the family together. That's her only job. Her father is working at the bank in a, basically a menial labor job. He counts money. He takes checks. He gives up money. But is more obsessed with his... He has this weird friend, Herb. 
Because it's great. That's one of the great characters for me. Herb is an incredible character. So they are not role models for her. Uncle Charlie is the only role model. And when he comes to town, before he comes to town, she's depressed. She's trying to figure out what to do. She spends time laying in bed thinking for hours. So that's really the only role model is this guy, Uncle Charlie. And then um, when he is discovered to be a murderer, that's really completely destroys her world. It made me think this would be a great double bill with The Fallen Idol, if you've seen The Fallen Idol. I have. Not in years, but I have. So good. You were talking about doing um, films from a child's point of view. Totally. No one would come to The Fallen Idol at midnight. Don't do it. But <laughs> that is a great But it's a great movie. movie. Oh, it's so good. It's, I just saw it again recently at uh, The Egyptian. And what, what's the, what's the, the premise? Is he sees the adults doing something that he can't fully it's a, uh, process? English manor, upper class family, and the the son has a he looks up to the uh, the butler, the valet, whatever the the head of the household is his man, the head of the servants, whatever he would be, he'd be. He really looks up to him, has a special relationship with him. That man who is the butler, I don't know really what his title is. He has a extramarital affair with one mm. of the cooks, and then there is a crime that's committed, and the boy ends up being a witness for the police and he has to deal with do I sell out this guy that I love or what happens and then it turns out that it's all revealed and it's all okay but his relationship is now destroyed because he sees him as imperfect the fallen idol right right yeah it's fantastic fantastic movie it would be really great to compare these two I think it's the same idea of holding somebody up as my ideal whether it's a romantic ideal or uh, in either one of these movies, is it, is it a romantic ideal, but a life ideal? And then to find out that there is more to this person and the more is not good. Well, let me throw a curveball in here. Do it. Does Charlie become hmm. Agent Dale Cooper? Ah! Who is a person who has seen it, knows that they are good, but is willing to explore and get as much information as they can about the dark side of the world. Oh, dude, that's brilliant. We, <laughs> Do you like that? Oh. You know, and it, it almost goes back to the first thing we were saying about your wall of uh, photos <laughs> in your apartment, which is, they're, they're in the end, with all great stuff, there's something that is just unexplainable um, that... You know, whatever your talent is in life, mm-hmm. you have a feel for it. And you can explain to people and you can analyze it. And, and you're right. And you can say, here's how you do it. Yeah. But other people won't quite stick the landing. Or they won't quite, you know, I mean, it's just something you somehow understand the recipe. Yeah. And with the great filmmakers, there's somehow this weird balance between clarity and simplicity and collaboration and trust and respect and they get it and they're like you know i'm you're gonna add this up but i'm gonna make this clear for you yeah and 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 i think that most of us 99.9 percent of us the the non camerons the non spielbergs the non hitchcocks the non kubricks we try to explain too much or we try to explain too little yeah we were talking about antonioni I think there's also the thing of, I'm not going to explain anything. Yeah. And that's bullshit. 
you know, I don't know where I am. Why are they doing this? I don't get any motivations. That's the point. No. <laughs> that's, a, that's a David Lynch film, Craig. No, Stevie. <laughs> Let's not go there. Stevie. You're not going to throw down the Lynch gun. Lynch is one of the masters. I don't know if our, our if anyone listening to the Terminator wants to listen to hear about David Lynch right now. Fair enough. I think that David Lynch goes even deeper in Twin Peaks: The Return and says that it is always a state of balance, and that the dark will never consume the light, and the light will never consume the dark, but the dark and the light are somehow in some kind of cosmic dance of balance that is totally beyond our ken. And I also find that to be a very powerful statement that moves me tremendously. But maybe that's the great truth that Charlie finds. And I might be making this up. I might be reading something into it that's not there. But that she succumbs to this relationship with a detective, which is not going to be fulfilling for her. No, he's kind of a dunce. He's kind of just a, he's a blank slate. Yeah, compared to her. Yeah. Or Uncle Charlie. Uncle Charlie, yeah. But she thinks, well, this is, this is a safe choice for me to make. I will not succumb to evil. If I go into this relationship, which will not be great for me, I'm not going to get what I want out of life, but I will not become my uncle. That conversation, that last scene had in front of a church. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah. In the park? No, no. They're in front of a church. They're doing the eulogy for Uncle Charlie inside. Oh, right, right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That conversation happens. Two institutions, marriage and the church. That's right. And he calls her over. He talks to Catherine. And says, hey, can you go get Charlie for me? I don't want to talk to you. Can you get Charlie for me? I think the woman who... I think the actress who plays Catherine is in The Lady Eve. Why is she? I think she is a woman on the cruise ship who is trying to flirt with Henry Fonda. Oh, no. She has the... Oh, the Sturges movie. Yeah, yeah. So how oh, old that, is... Yeah, that's The Lady Eve. How old is she there? I don't know. Must be the same. Must be within a few years, Yeah, right? 41. Yeah. 40. I think it's the same woman. I can't guarantee that. And it's neither here nor there. I don't I That's don't. for the Preston Sturgis podcast. Yeah, right. It's But but no, but but it's it, it I, see, now I think you're getting at something. Okay. And and maybe this is where we wrap it up because because you know, 10,000 years of human history has not resolved this question. Maybe this is a tragedy for Charlie. This this whole story. Well, so so talking about rear window. <laughs> Window. Uh, the, before we... I really, I thought it was more exciting of a movie than North by Northwest. I thought it was more exciting. Why was that? Yeah, we let's just transition. Why was that? Um, it was like I agree with you. By the way, you could see James Stewart, and it wasn't until like halfway or a third of the way through the movie that he got his uh, um, his lens out, the big lens that he put on one of his cameras, and then he was looking through the camera. Because he had binoculars at first, and then he had, like, the, the zoom lens. Yeah. So he's looking, and, like, he's seeing all these things play out, and you got the beautiful woman who's a dancer. Off to his left is the uh, is the couple, and, like, every time the guy goes to the window, and he rolls it up, and he has a cigarette, the lady says, Charlie, or something like that, you know, right. whatever the guy's name is. And he goes, damn, i got to get back to pounding. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 kids are like, what is that? And, uh, you know. 
what's she nagging him for anything? He's like, oh, I've got to go what? back. It's funny what you're saying because um, I love I love North by Northwest. Uh, yeah. The thing, though, with North by Northwest is it's it's intentionally, I think, a little ridiculous. And so yeah. you, you watch it and it's just it's just pure fun, pure popcorn. Cary Grant is so suave. Eva Marie Sane is so beautiful. James yeah. Mason is so urbane. Uh, you know, all these crazy things happen. The story is ludicrous, but it's, yeah. it's just so fun. But Rear Window could happen. And I think that Rear, yeah. rear Window, in a way, it, you are on the edge of your seat because it's not outside the realm of possibility that you yeah. could, somebody in your apartment complex could kill someone, and then you're like, what do I do? And then if yeah. they become aware that you know, then you're screwed. He actually is trying to tell his friend that he was like a crew person on on an airplane with. He's now a detective. He would come in and listen to James Stewart's story. Yeah, Wendell Corey. Yeah, and um, and he and he like you know he's like brushing it off and whatever you nuts until it gets to be a crescendo, which I found extremely exciting when it comes up where like the massage therapist for James Stewart and Eva Marie Saint. Grace Kelly. uh, What's her name? Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly. Possibly the most beautiful woman ever in American cinema. (laughs) (laughs) She goes over the wall with the masseuse and they get in the house and they look up in the dirt and it all comes together. And then like, uh, there was just such a great moment where you can see what, James Stewart is seeing, and he's he's terrified because now someone he knows is over there, and now it's going to be a personal thing. He's not just some kind of bystander; he's involved. Right, totally. And uh, like um, he's trying to get his. I think he called the cops before she went over there. I'm not sure because remember he like. Remember they call? Oh, because yeah, Miss, because um, the woman downstairs takes too many pills. Yeah, and she's going to commit suicide. So they call the cops initially to help her. Yeah, but somehow um, they get the cops to go up to the up. Like he tells his friend that something's going on. The friend, the detective. Yeah, and then I think he calls the police again, or he gets him to call his buddies and tells them to go over there and check it out. And then they go over there and check it out, and. um, Grace Kelly has his wife's wedding the, the, ring, the, yeah. his wife's ring on her, and she's going like this, like behind her back. Yeah, it's great, pointing to her finger. Ring. And you can see Raymond Burr's sight. He sees her ring, which is his wife's that he killed, that he was like going to sell because he's selling his, her jewelry. And then he looks straight over to where she looks like she's signaling it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he sees James Stewart. He's like, shit. That's how Raymond Burr gets over there. You know, I've seen the movie. So Rear Window is my personal favorite Hitchcock. It's actually also in my top ten. And that that moment, I I love Rear Window, that moment where she signals the ring and then Burr looks right into the camera, every single time the audience loses their shit. Yes. And yes. it's so great because you're like, that's being in the presence of a, a master movie maker. Because yeah. it's like the whole movie builds to that moment. And like you said, then you're like, oh, no, <laughs> you're screwed. <laughs> you're like, oh, shit, the jig is up. 
the jig is up. Yeah, yeah. She's just like, it's just almost hard to believe that someone looked like that. I, yeah, I remember thinking, she's a good-looking woman. She was 26. Yeah. That's like the age of the character. And just when she's kissing James Stewart, you're so there, and you can't get your mind around why James Stewart is always like, <laughs> you know, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. And across the way is such a, you know, like, a, and she's like kissing him, and you can hear, mm, and I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the funny, you know, so the funny thing about, the reason I love the movie, too, and it is, it's so, I think that great movies fire on so many different levels and yeah. none of them are preachy. That's when you know yeah. a movie's great. And yeah. so if you just want to watch Rear Window and have a blast, you yeah. can. But if you watch it enough and you get older, you realize the movie's also about Stuart's fear of commitment. And he's like yeah. looking into yeah. each window and he sees a married couple that's just married. Then he sees a couple that's been married for 30 years and literally the husband kills the wife. Yeah, and it's yeah. almost like Stuart. And then he looks and he sees, you know, uh, what what it could be if he never goes with anybody. Miss Lonely Hearts downstairs. He, oh, good point. He, yeah, like he sees what could happen if you know maybe you know he sees um, the dancer and she flirts with a lot of guys. Maybe yeah. that's his fear about Grace Kelly. And yeah. so then he looks in the and there's the bachelor who's writing the song and he yeah. sees maybe that could be him if he's just a slave to his profession. And so it's almost like he's looking. At at his subconscious and every single thing that he's worried about or what could be. And then there's Grace Kelly. But what you said is it, which is like, eventually you're like, dude, just get over it. It's Grace Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Oh man. That's, that's such a good point. I never thought of it like that. That's really cool. Charlie sees the balance and can't share it with many people. She's the only person she could share it with, ironically, is Uncle Charlie. Yeah. She can't share it with the FBI guy. He doesn't know. He doesn't get it. Yeah, in in that sense. Yeah. But she has gained wisdom, and she has survived, and she is going to continue on in an affirmative way. And therein, and I think when you look at Twin Peaks, The Return... And, you know, it ended on a cliffhanger. Dale Cooper and Laura Palmer go to the house in the last scene. They are still on a quest to to do something, even if it's a Mobius strip, even if it never resolves. And that choice of putting yourself on a path of of, of whatever that is, and, and this is where the, you know, you know, this is where words end. We've come to the end of the road. And we could talk, but 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 we have... I, I, this is where words end. But the journey continues. And I believe in that journey. Charlie is given up, though. I don't know. I don't think she so. has surrendered and become one of the regular people. The thing that I that that's so ironic and fascinating is that one of Schwarzenegger's greatest roles is where he isn't emoting, yeah. where he isn't trying to be human, uh, and weirdly he becomes. It's almost like what Kubrick pulled off in two thousand one. The machine is the magnetic center of the picture. 
You know, yes, right. Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean are great. They're dynamite. They're dynamite. But really, you see that movie for Schwarzenegger. Yeah, he's he's the the he's not the protagonist. He's a star, though. Yeah, which is an interesting thing that Cameron does in in that movie and in T two. Usually, your protagonist is the star, but in both of those movies, I'd say the protagonist is Linda Hamilton and Ed Furlong. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the star, but the star, it all revolves around in both of them. Actually, the villain in, in T two, it's everything revolves around. I mean, Robert Patrick's dynamite. Robert Patrick's dynamite, and the, the and 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 the uh, conception of that character and his portrayal. And so we only we we know we in T two we gauge where we are by where he is. Right. We think we get in the head, and then he shows up. And there's that, you know, the music that accompanies him every time. Um, but in The Terminator, you're, you're right. We're, we're, we're eyes are locked on Schwarzenegger, and he has, you know, only a handful of lines. He walks around, like, a, you know, stiffly. He's got this terrible accent, really, when you think about it. And the funny thing, when you're watching T2, you realize that somehow his Austrian accent was perfect, and you maybe couldn't do with that many accents in the world. It sounds robotic. When he speaks English, he sounds robotic. Right. And so... I never thought about that. Yeah. Because it's so weird that... If he had a French accent, he wouldn't come across as a... I mean, not... I love the fact that they worked in uh, the matchbook. I love the fact that it said R-O-T and Richard O. Thornhill. Right. Roger or Thornhill. And um, that was when he first met Eva Marie Saint on the train and he lit her cigarette cigarette from his own matchstick. Right. So he's like the the only way he can get a message down to her. She doesn't know he's in the room. Remember at the end? When yeah. 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 When with that great house that supposedly is right behind Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Yeah. So like <laughs> that's some uh, killer real estate. I don't know how that happened. I, I can't remember. Who tells James? I think it's James. I think it's one of his. Uh, Martin Landau is Martin the henchman, Landau, yeah. the crow, like the, the side guy. He he actually shoots James Mason with the blank that even where he's safe, just shot Cary Grant with right in, in the airport. I think. Yeah, the, so well, like the like, tourist shop. No, it was like the, yeah, it's a tour, tour tourist restaurant below Mount Rushmore of the of the of the Rushmore, and then James Mason's like. He's stunned, but Martin Lando is like, it's a blank. And like, she just shot um, Roger Thornhill with the same thing. But he's alive, and she's tra- traitorous. You know, she's traitorous. Right, she's right. Traitorous. She's caught. She doesn't know they know that. And she's sitting on the couch, and she's like, I'm ready for all my plane ride. And you know, it's like they're going to throw her out over 20,000 leagues under the sea. <laughs> That's a great James Mason. James Mason. Hello. Yes. But, uh, so. You know, also to Cameron, I don't, I feel like he didn't leave any meat on the bone. Like he didn't, he didn't leave anything no. on the, like he figured out how to make every scene click in five ways. So to me, you get Schwarzenegger and Bian mm-hmm. and there's an, Irony immediately, which is that Hamilton, Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor, thinks that Michael Biehn is yeah. going to kill her. 
Right. And he's trying to save her. We know that. She yeah, she's running away. She's hiding from him. From him. Until he saves her. Right. And this is this great irony because you're like, you're screaming at the screen, which is something that movies do. Yeah. Like, no, you need to talk to that dude. That dude's the only one who's going to save you. Yeah. And Cameron just, he's not wasting anything. Right. And then he plays it the, the opposite way in the second one where she's, when when Arnold shows up and she's, you know, of course it's right as she's finally escaping the mental institution She's the right, you know, ducks have lined up in a row for her to, like, make her escape. That's when they show up. And, again, now she's scared of him when she needs... Then he's there to help her. And, of course, right. she she does realize it when she sees the T-1000 walk through, you know, uh, bars. Uh, um, Which is... And yeah. I'm just going to throw this to you. you. You know, why is it that... I almost feel like the answer to it is it's just like it's it's why when Keith Richards plays a guitar, it's fucking killer. Mm -hmm. And when other people play a guitar, it's not. It's just Keith Richards gets how to play a guitar. And it's just that that's what it is. Why is it that Cameron, Mm -hmm. when he does a plot point or he does a plant and a payoff or he does a scene, just works, just works. And then other people. You watch him do stuff. Clearly, they thought about it for years. You see yeah. these movies, and you're like, I don't know. Uh, well, without specifics to go off of, what I would say is that a lot of times when people have thought about stuff for years, they don't, you know, it's it's that overthought, they, overthought, yeah. and then maybe it no longer fits in the in the movie, and they don't, can't kill their babies and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing is is what I keep saying, you know, with Cameron the. Plants, they're not just plants. They also work in the scene. When he plants something for a payoff later, it also works in the scene in which it's a plant. Which is how plants are supposed to work. You're not supposed to... I mean, look, if you're really, really savvy move to go over, you still spot them, but you don't mind it because they're not gratuitous to the scene they're in. They still play in. They still affect the scene. They still make that scene great. They just come back around, you know, half an hour later, 45 minutes later. Right. to, to, To... I mean, Cameron is, like, so good that in Aliens, I don't even think about it being people in alien no, suits. you totally buy it. Yeah. And, and, and it's, I think it's also like an alien. There's a scene where the guy, you know, the alien straightens up, and you're like, well, that's just a really tall, thin guy. And I know, it's true, I think they found some, like, six foot ten guy who weighed, like, 165 pounds. Right. And sure, his proportions are odd, odd. but he's still human. And I think Cameron just was like, I'm never going to show them standing up. I'm going to show them in such weird movements. And I think he might have hired acrobats or something, too. But he just, he doesn't give you the opportunity to see him as humans. He only shows them from various angles or in specific movements or hanging from a ceiling or shooting out of something that you, you don't have any choice. You don't get the opportunity to see the humanity. Right. The human form is what I'm trying to say. Well, and, 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 I mean, this But it's something clearly that he thought of. It's not a mistake. It's not, it's not coincidence, you know, it's, he clearly conceived everything. That's how much thought he puts into it. Yeah, so, uh. Well, so Psycho, let's, let's go to the Mamma Jamma. Let's go to Psycho. That's the movie I just got done watching a couple hours ago. How you processing it? I, uh, I, I just cannot. It's uncomprehensible how a movie can come together in such a way that it breaks every kind of barrier. It breaks 
every kind of notion you had of like, oh, the music was good. Of course the music was good. The characters were good. The story is phenomenal. The screenplay is tight. Everything goes to a beat, to a beat. And even when there's downtime, there's the birds over, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> over, uh, uh, what's his name? Anthony Perkins, Norman Anthony Bates. Anthony Perkins. So the, there's, the, there's the birds looming and like, I'm about to get you. And the first thing he says when she takes a bite, he's, she, he says to her, you eat like a bird. Oh. He says that to her right away. And uh, the first bite she takes. And uh, um, it was so like, oh, and then he's like a bird. And like when he bends over to see what the detective has seen in the ledger, and it, it, there, there's a shot from underneath looking up at Anthony Perkins and his big Adam's apple and the way he looks like a predatory bird. Hmm. He's like, mm, mm, mm. he's like shooing on some candy or something like that. And he's like, his Adam's apple going like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, mm, mm. and it looks like, it looks like you're looking underneath at a bird. It looks like that. So Avenue Hitchcock must have been, wait, let's do a shot <laughs> from beneath and off to the left. He looks like a bird. <laughs> and like I don't know how they got the idea to do it, but it was so good. And they also did this in Rear Window. They 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 maybe have a new technique that they can use optically. Oh, you mean the kiss? Uh, no, I'm talking about uh, the flash of the ball. Oh yeah, the red. The red. Yeah. Which is what. Which is what. Uh, he, that's his only defense. He knows it's so bright. He covers his own eyes, James Stewart does, and he shoots it, and he's got like about five or six of them. And he puts the next one in, and he cuts in, and there's this, this flash of red from uh, – um, um, what's his name? Raymond uh, Burr? Uh, Jimmy Stewart. Raymond Burr. Yeah, Raymond Burr is like – he's blinded for about three or four seconds each time. And it's the only thing he has to get. And then all, everything else is going on down there in the courtyard. And he says he's up here. And then he throws him off. Of course, they get the guy. And, you know, they're about to shoot him. But then somebody comes into his room and, and then they, they capture him. Right. But uh, it, I love those, those like red, red. And then, like, you know, I think that was a technique where they just they pushed the red uh, uh color and blinded the audience to, to make them see what he was doing. Well, and you know, the, th the thing with Hitchcock that I, I don't think anybody actually, not even Kubrick and I love Kubrick, but yeah. nobody could take avant-garde chances and yeah. yet make a movie that a general audience would love so yeah. consistently. Now, I think Kubrick did it, and I think Kubrick probably did it the best of anybody in, like, Strange Love in 2001 and Shining yeah. and stuff. But but Hitchcock made, like, whatever, like 60 films or something, 50 or 60 yeah. movies. And in yeah. so many of them, he's taking these crazy chances and doing these things. And it's like he figured out a way, if I make it a murder mystery where yeah. you're really into the story, yeah. I can take some nutty chances. And, like, in Psycho... I know everybody talks about it, but that movie's still jarring and brilliant 
where yeah. it's like you're following her and then she's out of the story 30 minutes into it. And yeah, then you're like, yeah. where where the fuck is the story going to go now? Yeah, yeah, and then he, like, buries the car in the swamp. And you're like, the money, the money. And that's all you're thinking about. <laughs> but, like, you just, that's, like, what we think of today. And I remember this. When I was a kid, when I was, like, 8 or 10 years old, I already knew he was his own mother. Right. I already knew that because of my mom. Oh, you remember Psycho? He was his own mother. And I was like. <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> and then I watched the movie. Why are you telling me that, Mom? That's like, pretty insane. I, I, like, like, I saw the movie when I was 12, and I was like, man, you know, he's, he's going to be, he's nuts. And it was just like, I knew the end. It's like, it's like, it's going to be so well known down the road that Sixth Sense, oh, he's he's dead the whole time. You but, know? but, you know, I think it's great that you brought up Sixth Sense. And I think Sixth Sense is a dynamite movie. Uh, and yeah. I, I saw Sixth Sense and didn't know the twist. And, I didn't either. Yeah. And I would still still see it again because I think yeah. it's so well done. But yeah. I have to say, I think Psycho is is the you have to put it at the top of movies that have twists that even after you know the twist, you can watch it again and again and again and again. Psycho to this day is it, there's just it is unsettling. It and, is, and, and then when you get to that last scene where, yes. and I think the last scene is so crazy because the psychiatrist or whatever explains and you're like, yeah, that's satisfying. You've given us the explanation. But when yeah. you go back to Norman and he just looks into the camera, you're like, that explanation doesn't make me feel comfortable at all. Yeah. He's, he's like, hmm, I wouldn't even swap that. <laughs> and he looks up at the camera. I've never seen a more evil look from a, a villain. It looks like he's like, eh. I was like, oh, <laughs> Oh, man. And, you know, it's you were talking about something. Just This is the other thing that's so unsettling about the film, and it's not an effect or a sequence. It's that, you know, Janet Lee. I think the reason the movie is so jarring and sticks with us, too, is, you know, she does a bad thing. She steals yeah. money. But yeah. she's not a bad person, and you certainly don't want to see any harm come to her. And yeah. then she has the conversation with Norman, and she decides to return it. So it's yes. like... You know, she's made this thing of like, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do the right thing. And Hitchcock really messes with us because in movies, when a character does something that's morally right, we expect them to be okay. And the next thing that happens is she gets killed. And you're like, what the? Holy shit. Because it's so like, it's so like, and then what happens? Is that the mother murders her in the show? <laughs> you know, my my gratitude to my father, among many things, he was he was a wonderful father. Um, was he loved action movies, and and I love action films, and I really don't like when people poo poo action movies. Um, right. It really gets on my nerves because it, it, you know, along with horror. Action is the the cinematic language that crosses borders. Every country can watch an action movie and love it. Mm -hmm. And to make a great action movie is extremely hard. And uh, so the thing I was thinking about, when when I saw Mad Max Fury Road, which I'm a big fan of. Mm -hmm. I think you and I may may differ a little bit on that, but I, I love Fury Road. Are you a Fury Road fan? I know we saw it together. I liked it. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, you know, George Miller, same thing. You know, I'm a huge Road Warrior fan. I'm a huge Fury Road fan. I'm a huge Aliens fan. I'm a huge Terminator T2 fan. 
That kind of filmmaking, I think, you know, we'll have to get Cameron on a podcast, mm-hmm. I, or George Miller, I think is very laborious yeah. and very painstaking because you have to shoot a ton of inserts, a ton of very exact shots. You have to set up the spatial relationships of everything. You have yeah. to set up how everyone's in danger. You have to pull the stunts off. You have to make people think yeah. people are in danger when they're clearly not. You have to do all this smoke and mirror stuff. And I, I feel like, you know, you hear these stories like we shot that sequence for a month. Yeah. We shot that and, and it's three minutes in the well, movie. You know, so we're talking about Psycho. And when I think of Psycho, I do think of I, I think of it in the same way I think of 2001, which is a movie that just changed everything. 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 Yes. And, and, you know, to this day, it's so amazing that really everything that came after it doesn't really match it. You, yeah. can't, you can't really say like, oh, Psycho was good until this movie came. And yeah. you can't yeah. really say like 2001 was good until this sci-fi movie came. No, they're classics because they stand the test Alien, of time. Aliens. Terminator T2, even Wrath of Khan, and then earlier you talked about Jaws. You know what all those movies have in common? Bad guys that are relentless. Oh, yeah, yeah. Even Khan, even though he's only human out of They're killing machines. They're killing machines. Yeah. They cannot be bargained with. They cannot be rationalized with. They are going to pursue until you kill them. That's true of the aliens. That's true of the Terminator. That's true of Jaws, ah. and it's actually true of 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 Khan. Even and they don't really even have have a weakness or character flaw. No, you just you just have to figure out how to stop the unstoppable. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I read it. I I hear that. I hear yeah. that. But I mean, what would the alternative be? What would what would the alternative ending be? She starts killing rich dudes. Well, no. <laughs> Widows stuff. She realizes that this detective is not a person that she can relate to. That's true. And she (laughs) says, I need to find my place in the world instead of becoming this guy's wife and having, uh, Uh, and becoming my mother. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Billy Wilder, yes. Billy Wilder in this thing, I only watched 20 minutes of it. The the Billy Wilder vocal or Schlongdorf, uh, Billy speaks. He said another thing. About Ernst Lubitsch, mm-hmm. who, who, who I love and he loved. Uh, but he said, you know, most filmmakers' tendencies is to go two plus two equals four. Also, one plus three equals four. Also, four plus zero equals four. Just so you know, it equals four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he said, Lubitsch said two plus two. Mm. And stopped. And he said, that's what made, he let you add it up. And that's what made Lubitsch uh, Lubitsch. And I was like, oh, Billy Wilder. Oh, man. Okay, well, let's leave it on that open question. Open questions. Okay. Pound it out, third podcast. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. My pleasure. It's been an awesome experience. I love this. Well, I'm going to cut it together. I'll send it to you. Take a listen. Make sure you like it. And, right. and I mean, we're, we'll talk in the next week or two anyway. Yeah, do and, it again. Yeah, and uh, there'll be plenty more movies. And, and this is the inaugural podcast, A Secret Movie Club, and it was with Brian Hatfield. What's your middle name, Brian? Joseph. Joseph. Brian Joseph Hatfield, May 11th, 2018. It's uh, 6.36 p.m. Pacific time, 9.36 uh, p.m. Eastern time. 
And uh, your your name is Craig Herbert Hamill. Craig Herbert Hamill. All right. All right, man. We'll do it again. Sounds good. Peace, brother. All right. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. You were talking about clarity and knowing when uh, when to explain. I think it, what it is is maybe it's the it's trust that we can put together the elements of the story that are human, but knowing that we have to put together they have to put together the parts that are I don't say not human. No, totally. But they, they have to do their job. Yeah. You know the audience can't can't know the cinematic space. Yeah. That's not fair. Right. So we, I think you're right. I think you've hit it. A good director does her or his job. My job is to lay out the rules. Yeah. But then I'm not going to explain the rules to you and play the game. I'm going to let you play the game with me. Yeah. But you know the rules. I know the rules. Let's play together. All right. Anything else you want to say about Terminator? We'll wrap it up tonight. Oh, man. It's 1110. Oh, Marta. That's early. Wife. It is. We should. I have no. A, I, I would say that it. Um, it's 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 thirty two years old. Thirty four. Thirty four years old. Um, still dynamite, and it's still dynamite. It's as good as it ever was. Maybe and better. It's well. It certainly stands out from the bunch. Yeah. It, it, in the eighties, it could have been seen as, "Hey, that was a great movie." But again, like these movie, other movies, we're talking about. If you haven't seen it, go see it. There's a reason why we're still talking about it. It it it's it kicks ass. And also real fast, it does something else. We forgot to mention there's a scene where she goes to the cops and the cops because uh, she knows that someone's killing Sarah Connors. Yeah. And so it's they're like, Oh, maybe it's a weird serial killer who's just killing everyone with his name or going down the phone book, whatever. Stay here. This is the safest place you can be. <laughs> this is in the middle of a police station. There's 35 cops. You couldn't be in a safer place. And Cameron shows that not even that place is safe from the Terminator. That's pretty ballsy. Yeah. That's like kind of brilliant. Yeah. Like no, if you're not safe in the middle of a police station, surrounded by 35 cops, where are you safe? Right. Right. And he does the great thing of she in the end kills the Terminator. Yeah. It's that thing of the hero is totally inadequate in a way, in a way. Mm-hmm. In other ways, they're totally matched, as she is, because Linda Hamilton's great in T1 and T2. Yeah. Um, but in some ways, as a regular human being who's a waitress, yeah, she's totally unmatched to this killing machine. And, and, and that's okay, because she's just a regular person. She's not... It's it's not like these other movies where like the the especially sometimes these movies with, with a female sort of uh, victim for lack of a better word is their main character where they're just feeble you right. know there's no way she's she's a regular person there's no way she's matched for this thing yet at the end she rises to the occasion exactly yeah. and that's the, sort of crumbling right and I think maybe that's another thing of cinema is in the end I think maybe it hits a truth like you were yeah. talking about how. A dua ex machina can work when it puts the the character at a worse disadvantage. Yeah. Because maybe that resonates with our understanding of existence. And I think when a regular person rises to the challenge, not because they wanted to, not because yeah. they were a genius, but because they had to, 
and they were just able to do it just because she just barely is able to do it. Sure. Um, that resonates with sometimes we can rise to insurmountable challenges, yeah. even though we didn't think we could. It's okay that Michael Bean saves her, I don't know how many times up until that point. It's not because he's from the future, he's got the tools to save her. But he couldn't save her the last time she had to save herself. That's what makes it satisfying. Right. And again, makes it brilliant. Yeah. All right, so there you go. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Happy New Year. I'm looking forward to making 2022, uh, you know, onwards and upwards. Let's make movies. Let's screen movies. Let's figure this out. Uh, You know, I wrote a blog piece this week uh, about uh, Pig, which I really enjoyed. The Nicholas and Alex Wolf starring Pig, directed by Michael Sarnowski. And also, I, I just, in that blog piece, just talked about 2022. And I, I, I'll just say, you know, I'll repeat a line I wrote in there. You know, cinema and storytelling, the power of cinema and storytelling is eternal. And uh, we got a lot of work to do. So I wish everybody the best. Let's uh, get to work and uh, make 2022 the year that cinema came roaring back. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Check out everything we do at secretmovieclub.com or just get tickets by Googling Eventbrite. Go to our Eventbrite page and follow us, Eventbrite and Secret Movie Club. All right. I wish you all the best wherever you are, whoever you are. Uh, Watch great movies. Thank you for everything you've given us. uh, And let's... Let's do even more and make even more in 2022. Okay, peace.